Welcome to the Poetry Podcast with Magnus Basharat, Ode on a Grayson Perry Urn by Tim Turnbull. Ode on a Grayson Perry Urn need not be read necessarily alongside John Keats's 1819 poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn as it stands up as a poem in its own right. But it is a pastiche of Keats's poem, and its structure and rhyme are similar. Keats's poem concludes with the assertion that beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all. Whereas Ode on a Grayson Perry Urn concludes with who knew that truth was all negotiable? Keats's assertion is absolute. The beauty of the vase and its scenes depicted express and capture a beauty which is immutable. Ode on a Grayson Perry Urn asserts that beauty is relative. It's in the gift of the beholder, which is itself a development of the proverbial beauty is in the eye of the beholder. What one person finds beautiful, another won't. There are profound aesthetic arguments that underpin both conclusions. But as far as the two poems relate to each other, Keats's view is the romantic view of its time, whereas Ode on a Grayson Perry Urn offers a postmodern view of what constitutes beauty. Both poems are comprised of five stanzas. Keats's poem is in iambic pentameter. Tim Turnbull employs a pentameter, a line with ten syllables but it is not iambic, with its stressed syllables falling randomly. The speaker opens the poem as though they have come across the urn, perhaps displayed in an art gallery. Hello, what's all this here? Which is a parodic contrast to Keats's opening line, Thou still unravished bride of quietness. Shirley Temple is a reference to the artist, Grayson Perry who dresses as an alter ego called Claire in clothes and accessories that often resemble Shirley Temple, the American child actress of the 1930s. The artist has depicted tales of kids in cars on crap estates. So rather than scenes of gods and maidens in idealised woodland, the stories depicted on the Grayson Perry urn show the realism of contemporary working-class life of young people Flail is a violent verb which is often used to describe threshing or the use of a flail in battle to kill someone. So a driver flailing their car is treating it in an extremely violent way, trying to go as fast as possible. From Manchester to Motherwell or Slough are the huge distances driven at speed, but also a list of cities and towns that each have a reputation for urban crime and deprivation. Your gaudy evocation is the poet speaking to the artist. And he compliments the artist that he can conjure the scene so recreated accurately on the vase and more successfully than a story in a newspaper, a Daily Express expose, which, because it would be presented as reportage, would probably sensationalise the reality to evoke shock or horror in its readers. The second stanza 
develops the picture of reckless use of cars by the people depicted on the bars. It includes lots of aural description, and the noise of the cars being driven is forcefully evoked. Roar, screech and throb are all used to describe the intrusive sudden noises. Throb of UK garage is the sound of garage music, mid-90s electronic dance music, popular when people met in abandoned warehouses for raves. What's unusual is that the Vars can depict these scenes of violent noise and disruption, yet educe a sense of peace, of calm. Because it's an inanimate object, albeit one which captures scenes that are extremely noisy and violent. But these wheels will not lose traction, skid and flip, no harm befall these children. Because they have been painted onto a vase, and so are not real, whereas the scenes from life they depict present real danger to those taking part, even though they are too young to quite appreciate the peril therein. The end rhyme in the poem shows what an accomplished parody of Keats's original Ode on a Grayson Perry Urn is, with roar and awe, calm and harm, squeals and wheels, late and appreciate, all full end rhymes that show a structural formality to the poem that is a contrast to the informality of the language and the subject matter, which is not elevated or philosophical, but shows realistic urban living. The third stanza begins, pumped on youth and ecstasy. So ecstasy, the drug MDMA, which was the drug of choice for clubbers dancing to garage music in the 1990s, emboldens the young men and women in the scenes depicted. The feelings of invincibility that youth experience keep them pumped, full of confidence and a working assumption that nothing bad can happen to them because they're young. Alloy refers to the wheel rims on their fast cars and bass, another reference to music, this time to the bass vibrations that shake their cars from the inbuilt and extremely powerful music systems. The back lanes, the urban gyratory, the wide motorways, lists the kind of roads from small to large that the kids in cars drive along. There isn't anywhere that they don't feel belongs to them. Each girl is buff, each geezer toned and strong, continues the colloquial use of urban slang that is the appropriate language to describe the scenes and stories on the bars. The girls on the bars are buff, well-toned and attractive, and the boys are geezers, London slang for a man, and they are charged with pulsing juice. The imagery becomes sexualized as the well-defined genitalia of the people depicted in the bars fills every pair of Calvins and each thong. Oral sex is crudely depicted as given head in crude games of chlamydia roulette, where the transmission of a sexually infectious disease is the price of promiscuity. Buckfast and Diamond White are cheap and strong ciders, usually sold in two-litre bottles and favoured by younger drinkers, often underage, because there is a large volume for relatively little money. The driving of cars is a spectator sport, and burnouts and donuts 
are both driving stunts, whereby aggressive braking at speed can leave tyre tracks on the road, and the very skillful and practised can write on the road. Attention turns soon, though, to the urban landscape and away from the young people depicted. The bleached tarmac of dead suburban streets creates a desolate image, with the cars and people the only signs of life. The tension between the risk-taking youth out to have fun and the elderly residents who want them off the streets is explored as pensioners and parents telephone the cops to plead for quiet, sue for peace. Tranquility, though, is for the rich. The speaker steps away briefly from describing the detail of the vase to tell us that there is no peace and quiet in the suburban wastelands in this scene. The fifth stanza, like Keats's ode, makes a conclusive assertion to which the rest of the poem has been building up. Keats was looking at his urn two millennia or more on from when it was executed. So the speaker contemplates what viewers will make of this vase when all context is lost. Will the aesthetic judgment be that children lived lives so free and bountiful? The scenes themselves show hedonistic enjoyment and self-gratification. It's only the social context that we are aware of which offers a very different interpretation. Will future poets, the John Keats of 4,000 years CE, interpret the scenes and muse, how happy were those creatures then? Keats's assertion is that beauty is truth, truth beauty, in which case the poet might feel that this vase is a thing of beauty and the scene it depicts representations of all that is beautiful and enduring. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Podcast. More podcast episodes in the series are available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever podcast player you use. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now. Thank you.